Are you all set? Are you all set to listen? Are you set to listen as an act of worship? All right, great. Great. Let's pray together and ask for God's help. Father, we just depend on you entirely. We depend on you and your spirit to be able to worship you well and honour you well. And uh, thank you for the joy of being able to forsake that whole mentality of trying to do it our way and trying just to bring our best effort and hope it will work. We thank you we've been delivered from that and to a place where we're able to operate out of the strength that you supply and out of the grace that you give. So we pray for grace on this message now. Grace on me as I speak. Grace on the guys as they hear. Let them hear what the Spirit is saying, I pray. Change lives to your living and active word. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we're doing a series on wisdom. This is week number three. Week one we did an overview of wisdom. Where we learnt that the foundation of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And really the way the Bible describes wisdom is kind of like building a house in many ways. And so to live a wise life is to live a well-built life. It's not just that you put in a few little nuggets or pearls of wisdom, you know, to get by. But you build, there's a sense of proportion about the way you build your life. And the foundation, which obviously is the most important part of any building, is the fear of the Lord. So last week we spent the whole, whole week on the fear of the Lord. I would just say this, if you weren't here, please download it. Um, not because it was brilliant, although it was, but because, <laughs> uh, because, um, because it's the foundation. So the danger is if you don't really feed on the foundation, then you start to, you start to build. It's, it's not wise. So please just even, you probably think, well, I've heard that stuff before, I'm sure you have. Maybe many of you, but just to refresh on it again, um, please do listen to that. But now we're going to start building over these next few weeks. And this week we're going to start by looking at friendship. Um, next week, parents, parenting. The following week, sexual purity. So they're going to have a good time over the next three weeks. Um, but as I'm thinking about the message on friendship, I'm thinking to myself, how do I stop this being the classic school assembly message? Yeah? <laughs> Don't fall in with the wrong crowd. Don't give in to peer pressure, blah, blah, blah. Um, if that's all I'm going to say, then we need to just pack up and go home. Um, because really that's the best the world can do. Um, God can do a lot better than that. And a lot more profound than that. And so let's make sure that we're hitting something profound tonight. Let's make sure that what we're doing is filled with glory. And the way it's going to get filled with glory is if it's filled with Jesus. Because Jesus is the outshining, the radiance of God's glory. So let's make sure that tonight's message is filled with Jesus. That Jesus is at the centre um, and that as we do so, we're able to plumb something to the depths of the glory of God in his creation and in his salvation in Jesus Christ. Then we get to understand a, God view, a God-centered view of friendship and understand really the, the implications for the way we approach friendship in life. Um, the, a good way of describing salvation in Christ is like a multifaceted jewel. You look at it in different lights and different things shine through. And one of those uh, kind of facets, if you like, is our new identity in Christ when we become Christians. Now, just to say, some of you here, you might think, what do you mean become Christians? I thought people are born Christians. No, no one is born a Christian. It is impossible to be born a Christian. Your family may be Christians, but you can't be born one. You can be born into a Christian home and benefit from that, hopefully. That doesn't make you a Christian. Jesus said that you cannot enter the kingdom of God except by being born again. So there must come a point, whether it's a dramatic moment or more of a process, but there comes a point where you move from darkness into light, where you become a follower of Jesus, where you become a Christian. At that point, your identity changes. You become, as the Bible describes it, a son of God. 
You become a living stone in the temple that God is building, which is made of people. Individually, you become a temple of God. You become part of a royal priesthood. You become a brother with Jesus. You become a friend of God. You become part of the body of Christ, a member of the body of Christ. You become part of the bride of Christ. You become one spirit with Jesus. And there's all these wonderful ways of describing what we become as we come to know Christ. But I think it's important, and I want to labour the fact tonight, that it's not bland and one-dimensional. It's not just that you list them off, and it's like, well, there you go, bang in your lap, you're saved. No, there's different elements of what you become in Christ work differently. Let me illustrate by looking at how we become sons, and then how we become the bride, and then in the middle I'm going to drop friendship to help you understand it. You up for that? Great. Okay, when you become a Christian, you become a child of God instantly. You become a son of God instantly. The Bible teaches that as you become a Christian, the spirit of sonship indwells you. And so he, that spirit of sonship, witnesses with your spirit, you're a child of God. And you find that you're able to call God Father in a way that is meaningful, and it's coming from the depths of your being. It's not just that you're saying the Our Father, but you're crying out from the depths of your being, Abba Father, Daddy Father. You can't do that except by the spirit of sonship. And that happens from the moment you're born again. The moment you become a Christian, you are received into, into the very uh, close, intimate presence of God as one of his children. You'll be get, you'll begotten in a moment. You're a child of God. It's done. Now, just say this. The Bible uses the word son. Sons and daughters occasionally, but mostly sons. Why? Here's why. In the biblical culture, it was the sons who inherited the father's well, inheritance. It was the sons who were the heirs of the father's inheritance. Okay? And so it's important because it's saying this, whether you're a guy or girl, if you're saved, you're a son, in what sense? You're an heir. You're an heir of eternal life. You're an heir of the inheritance that the Father has for you. So it's cool to be a son of God, whether you're a guy or girl. Okay? And so that's where some of these um, more modern translations that try and be kind of gender inclusive get it a bit wrong sometimes. It's a big deal that you're a son of God, regardless of your gender. It means you're an heir. And a co-heir with Christ. It's a beautiful thing. But it happens in the moment. That's the point. But what about being part of the bride of Christ? Is, does that happen in the moment? Are you the bride the moment that you are saved? How does that work? Well, let's just look at some scriptures. I want to teach you that the nuance, the way that works, is a little bit different. If we get the first slide up, we'll just look at some scriptures from the book of Revelation, which should help us. Maybe we're having some technical difficulties. Two seconds, cool. Great. Thanks, Ollie. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him, God, the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. The Lamb is Jesus and his bride has made herself ready. The bride is the church, the people of God. So there's something of the marriage supper of the Lamb, like a big reception, if you like, and it's talking about something that will happen in the future, culmination, where the, the groom, Jesus, the Lamb of God, will be joined with the people of God, the bride. It's, it, that day is coming, it's future tense. And then Revelation 21, verse 9 to 10. Now this bit of scripture comes just after God has said, Behold, I make all things new, referring to the new heavens and the new earth. So it's the culmination of the whole of history. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Again, the new Jerusalem be in the church of Jesus Christ. And so we see, okay, okay. They, so the church is, becomes a bride, becomes a wife, but this is the, the culmination of history. We're not there yet. So where are we at now? Maybe the best language to use is what Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 11, which we see on the next slide. 
Paul says to the Corinthians, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. We are betrothed at the moment. We're engaged. Now, biblically, when you're engaged, it's legally binding, which is why when, Jesus, when, sorry, when Joseph thought that Mary had been fooling around when she got pregnant, it says that he resolved to divorce her quietly. You think, well, why divorce her? They're only engaged. Because in, in that culture, when you were engaged, it was legally binding, and to separate was to divorce. And so the fact that we are betrothed with Jesus doesn't mean he's casual about us. There's a sense it's covenant, there's a binding element to it, but we are not yet married to him, we are engaged, we are betrothed to him. Okay? Now, the, the reason I'm making that point is to demonstrate to you, yes, through the gospel we become the bride of Christ, but there's a trajectory, there's an element to which you move towards that wedding day at the moment we're betrothed. Do you understand that? Yeah. Okay, so instantly, sons, you move toward becoming the bride. What about friends of God? Are, is every Christian a friend of God? I think every Christian can name Jesus as their friend, without a doubt. But would Jesus name every believer as his friend? Well, let's look at it and just see where we go. I want to do so by just helping you through understand the, the plan of God. And so you, you're stepping back, look at the big picture for a moment. We're going to plumb the depths. Depth number one. Friendship with God is the original plan. Definitely. We see it in Genesis. Let's have a look at these scriptures up here. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Why? Also, they might represent his rule, but also so there might be a genuine connection, a friendship. God might relate to those created in his image. There's a likeness there, an ability for two-way relationship. It's staggering. I can't explain why God did it other than in his wisdom he saw it right. But the way you have been made in the image of God means you are able to relate to him in a way that's real. It's not just automaton. It's not just, yeah, but we know what's going on really. God's just moving it all around. It's not like that. He is totally sovereign, but the relationship is real. He does look for genuine response. He's interested in your thoughts, your ideas, your plans. Your thoughts, ideas and plans are not always wrong. Some Christians get into that, don't they? And they say, oh, it's not, your, not my or yours. You know, listen, that happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was a one-off. There are moments in our life where we most definitely have to say, God, not my will, yours be done. Absolutely. We realize the thing we want to do is against God's will. But very often what we want to do is, is the desire of God in our heart. And God wants to hear that. And we can dream together with God. And there is something of, this is, this is friendship with God, okay? So it's cool. And look at Genesis 3. Uh, just after they sinned, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, it's not explicit, but I think it's implicitly suggested that this was something of a pattern that the Lord would come at the cool of the day, the loveliest part of the day, when, when, when the sun is no longer at its hottest, but it's before evening, just nice, and would come and would walk with them through the garden. Who knows, maybe they would talk through what Adam had been cultivating lately and just enjoy being with one another. There's a sense of ease, repose, transparency. It's definitely God's plan originally that we might be friends with him. And this is how it was. We find, however, just after this, when God comes in, that they hide. They've already sewn fig leaves together because they're ashamed of their nakedness. Fears come in. And then we find that horizontally their relationships grow tense and destructive. God brings a judgment on them. Adam becomes a dominating husband. Eve becomes a usurping wife. There's tension there. And then their children, Cain and Abel. Cain murders Abel. And the next guy uh, along called Lamech, I mean, it's a nightmare. I think it's Genesis 5 somewhere or something. He's just like kind of like the sort of um, 
the, the earliest mafia boss in the Bible, if you like, is kind of like, you mess with me, I'm going to mess with you. He's like, uh, you turn on my toe, I'm going to stab you in the head. He's a real bully. He gathers his wife. He's a real bully. He, he goes, come here. Calls his wives over and says, you know what? He starts boasting about who he's going to do in. And it's just embarrassing. But basically what's happened is we see a degeneration in humanity instead of a progressive evolution. Very important point. Okay? Human beings are not evolving and progressing into something wonderful, as is a common Darwinian secular thought. We are degenerating because we're falling and falling and falling away from God. So this is what's going on. Just help you understand God's original plan. Okay, Uh, depth number two. God's plan appears almost hopelessly lost. But it is definitely, for sure, beyond our own best efforts to fix. We're in a bad way. Look at Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Notice the order there, ungodliness and unrighteousness. That one comes first. You fall away from God, then comes the unrighteousness. Okay? You turn away from God, then comes the immorality. Then comes the bitterness, then comes the anger. It all goes wrong. You want to get it right, you have to get right with God. What follows from godliness is righteousness. You can't just fix the horizontal, the vertical's got to be fixed, but we're in a bad way. In what sense? Well, imagine for a moment the fact that we were supposed to be born or even conceived in relationship with God. That even from our time in the womb, it was God's original perfect plan that we would know only harmony and a sense of beginning to fellowship with God, even in the womb. And that as we come out, we would grow in perfect uh, friendship with him. Whereas now the Bible says we're born objects of his wrath. We've fallen a long way. It is bad. The situation is very, very bad. And we like to think we can fix it. We like to think, well, I can maybe straighten a few things out, you know, turn over a few new leaves, make things better, and we can't. And that troubles us. Why? Here's why. Because we love to feel like we can straighten things out ourselves. Why? Because then we feel good about ourselves. And we love to feel good about ourselves. Why? Because we are egotistical, self-centered, and sinful. What does the gospel do? The gospel takes us to the cross where we find a bloody mess and we're not sure quite what or who it is and we say, what's going on here? And we are told, that's the Son of God. You think, what? That is the eternal, glorious God in flesh, the Word made flesh, that's the Son of God. And you say, well, what on earth is he doing there like that? You say, oh, well, what's happening there is is that um, the debt, that is owed to God by sinful people for their sin is being paid. Well, in what sense? In the sense that the reason he's hanging there and the reason he's such a mess is because he is under the fierce wrath and judgment of God to the extent he's become sin. And you say, well, this is all wrong. Yeah, it is all wrong in one sense, isn't it? You say, well, I should be. Why, why can't I deal with my own debts? Here's why. Because the more you try and deal with your own debts, the worse it gets. How so? Well, you try and deal with your debt by doing something good and you fall into pride. Bang, the debt increases. And it's futile. And it's desperate. And God's solution is that he gave his only son to be crucified for us. So that the debt against us could be cancelled. And so that as a free gift, God might make us righteous and reconcile us to himself. And this gospel leaves us feeling appropriately rotten about ourselves, but very impressed with Jesus. This gospel of self-esteem, come to Jesus and he'll make you feel better about yourself, is a false gospel. 
It's heresy and it's wrong. You come to the gospel and you, will real, you come to Jesus and you will realise this about yourself. You are hopelessly lost and you are desperately corrupt. But God in his mercy has found a way of reconciling you to himself, recreating you with a brand new heart and setting you on the path to glory. That leads to worship. Praise God, freedom from self. That's good. That is glorious. This is the gospel. Look at this verse. For our sake, for our sake, for your sake, he, that's God, made him, Jesus, to be sin on that cross. Him who knew no sin, the perfect one. So that in him, we might become, you might become, the righteousness of God. If you're a Christian, you say after me, I am the righteousness of God. Don't you think as you say that, am I going to be struck down? How can I say such a thing? Because you're in him. You say it outside of him, you go and say it in a field somewhere. Don't say it near me. I don't want, I don't want that kind of singy smell on my clothes. It's arrogance. But in him, hidden in the beloved, you become the very righteousness. What a gospel. Woo. What a gospel. Depth number three. Recreation, being born again, begets us into sonship. And yet mysteriously, there's even more than that. Look at these verses. John 1, verse 12. Ollie, could we have that one, please? But to all who did receive him, that's Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And look at this verse, 1 John 3, 1 to 2. See what kind of love the Father's given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we'll see him as he is. So we're sons of God, but we're going to become something else. There's something even more glorious coming. Now, here's the point. We're going to dip into the friendship thing now. Because, you know, with my children, when they were born, they were just my children, straight away. Yeah? Agreed? It's like, they hadn't done anything. They just lied there. (laughs) Just lied there. Went to the toilet, drunk milk. Basically. But they're my children. Why? In that moment, they've been, we've begotten them. We've begotten them. Here they are. They're our children. But what is my dream for my children? I've got two dreams. Dream number one, they get saved. That they come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Dream number one. Dream number two, that they become my friends. That's my aim. I daydream about that. I daydream about going fishing with Levi. I don't even like fishing. <laughs> Well, it's just one of those, you know, it's one of those things. You know, imagine it's in a boat out on a lake somewhere, out fishing, you know, but what's really going on is we're chatting. We're, he's a bit older and we're talking and it's two-way and there's just a rapport and we've got history so we know our own funny little ways and we'll rib each other a bit and laugh and then we'll get deep and we'll talk about men's things. And, you know, <laughs> friendship. That's what I long for. I dream about taking my girls out. We'll go out and get her get a coffee or hot chocolate or something and they'll tell me about what's going on and I'll get them in a headlock and make sure they haven't got a boyfriend. 
<laughs> Stuff like that. Friendship. <laughs> My kind of friendship. I dream, I do. I don't dream about the headlock, but I dream about, I want, to, I want to be friends with it. I want to be friends with the kids. Now, here's the thing I want to suggest to us tonight. I want to suggest to us that it's a bit like that with God. That instantly we're born again, we become sons. But we grow into friendship. It is not an automatic, I'm a friend of God. There's something, and I want to just show you from the scripture so you can just weigh it for yourself. I wouldn't go to the stake for this, okay? But I think actually it's quite a beautiful thing that could help us in our walk with the Lord. So should we look at some scriptures just to help us? Firstly, Enoch. Let's look about Enoch. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah for 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Here's the deal. This, this man comes in a list of lots of other guys. You think he lived for long. Man alive. His boy lived to 969. This guy died as an adolescent. They had a funeral, you know, kind of like an early departure, you know. I mean, 365, but it was early days. So, but the thing is, on every other name, it says they, the age they died... It doesn't say that about Enoch. Enoch didn't die. What happened with Enoch? He, what did he do? What did he accomplish? There's no list of that, but we know something. He walked with God. He recovered something of that walking in the garden in the cool of the day. He, dis- he rediscovered it in God, and he walked with him, and it got to the point where God said, you know what? I've just got to have you, and I'm not going to wait another 600 years. Come on. I just want you with me. Friendship with God. Abraham. Look at what it says about Abraham. Isaiah speaking to Israel. But you, Israel, my servant... Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. God's speaking through Isaiah, calls Abraham his friend. In James 2, it talks about Abraham being God's friend. And the context is what? The context is when God tells Abraham to give up his one and only son, Isaac. And, so he, and, and he does. And you just think, it's, for me, it's the most horrifying story in the Bible, I think, other than the, 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 the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It's a, fore, it's a foreshadowing of that. It's where this beautiful son Isaac, who Abraham delights in, and God knows, he says, your son whom you love, I want you to sacrifice him to me. And you think, gosh, and he has to walk this three-day journey to get to the place where God says, and who knows if he told Sarah or stole away in the night. Maybe he was even too scared to face his wife. I don't know. But he, he, he went away, and, 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 and it gets to the point where his son is bound up on this kind of altar, and, and the knife's in the air. And he's about to do it. And we think, what was going on in his head? Well, in Hebrews 11, it says that in his sense, he had a sense of faith. If it goes all the way, God will bring him back. Just this robust trust in the faithfulness of God. He'd waited 20 odd years for this kid. God had promised him. He'd seen the faithfulness of God. Something had built in him of a robust, deep trust. And he said, I'm just going to do it. And the knife's in the air. And everyone, you read it, you go, this can't be happening. And the angel of the Lord's thinking, what am I going to do? And God suddenly says, okay, go. And he goes, stop. I now know that you fear the Lord. There's a ram over there caught in the head. You can kill him instead. And it was his test. And as a result, Abraham's called the friend of God. Why? Because what you see is this trust. And something has built up over the years of a two-way trusting relationship. It's glorious. It's glorious. Moses. That's the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. What was it about Moses? There was this humility. There was this remarkable humility. He, he was a big guy and of himself in the early days. When he was 40, he tried to rescue the Israelites himself, went horribly wrong, ran away to the wilderness. 40 years of obscurity. He must have, been, he must have seen himself as the guy who blew it. 40 years, we don't know what happened, what we're doing at the end of that 40 years when he was 80. 
God appeared in the burning bush and said, okay, now you're ready. Go and rescue him. Something had happened in the man. Incredible humility had been built in over time. And he becomes a friend of God. This whole inheritance of being a friend of God is ours through the gospel. Absolutely through what Jesus has done. We, we, are, we are reconnected, reconciled to him so that we can become friends of God. But it's something that we grow into. Look at it with Jesus and his disciples. This is very, very helpful. Jesus says to his disciples, you're those who've stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom. And then just before he goes to the cross, he says, greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command you. It's a conditional, if you trust me. So you obey me. No longer do I call you servants. The relationship's changed, you see. It's been a dynamic, it's changed, it's not what it was. For the servant doesn't know what his master's doing, but I've called you friends for all that I've heard from my father. I've made known to you. It's glorious, this thing. Something had grown, something had developed. This is the key. Become a friend of God. As you become a friend of God, you will understand how to be a good friend to others around you. And we're going to just spend our time now just looking at what does this mean for our friendships with those around us. Okay? Still with me? I've only got nine points on this next bit, so it's cool. Okay. (laughs) I'm not even joking. Okay, we'll be quick though. Uh, Point number one. Friendship is a gift from God. I mean, friendship now of other people, and it reflects his triune nature that he's a God himself in friendship, in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the way God describes friendship in the Bible is sometimes quite startling. Look at some of these scriptures. Deuteronomy 13, verse 6, refers to your friend who is as your own soul. That is an intimate friendship. As soon as he, that's David, had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. The Bible is, is clear and strong on this whole, uh, there's these friendships that are so close, it's like our souls are knit together, and the Bible says that can be a very positive God-given thing. Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times. That's what a fr- it is friendship. 18.24, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You can have loads of acquaintances, loads of companions, but there's a friend, and he's there. He's there when you're in the thick of it. Friendship is a gift from God. The Bible knows and speaks of especially close, non-sexual friendship. And I will say, this, when speaking about these, these soulmates thing, I would say, and then you shoot me down and ask me questions or whatever, I would say that is between guy and guy and girl and girl. If it's between a guy and girl, it should go to marriage. I would counsel against guy and girl soulmate friendships that are not romantic. Number two. Friendships must never obstruct or damage our friendship with God. We cover and treasure our friendship with God above all else. This can happen. It can happen through control. There's a sense in which one person in the friendship is controlling the other. There's almost a lordship issue. It's subtle, but there's a lordship thing going on. Or it can happen through um, ungodly soul ties. There's a knitting together, but you know what? The dynamic is, it's, it's, it's harmful. It can be unequal yoking. 
What does it say in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14? It says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now often we use that saying, look, it's not a good idea to be, to be going out with, to be caught in an unbeliever if you're a believer. We say it's not a good idea. Why? Because you're going in different directions. One of you, you're following Jesus. The other one isn't. It's going to be unequal. One's going to be going that way and it's going to be cause tension. It's, it's, not, it's not a good idea. The Bible says it's a bad idea. Don't do it. It can be the same in very close friendships. You're yoked together. There's a yoking. Oh, I can't do that because, you know, what will they think? Vows. Best friends forever. Don't do it. Powerful. Needs to be broken. That will be a leash on you. Unwise. And spiritually powerful. You need to be released from such vows. These kind of relationships are idolatrous. They keep us on a leash. They keep us from complete freedom to follow the Lord Jesus wherever he sends us. You are to be in no relationship in your life where it hinders your freedom to go where Jesus sends you. Look what Jesus says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What is he saying? Because isn't he the guy that tells us to love people? What's he mean? Here's what he means. He means your love for him must be paramount to the extent that at times it will appear like you hate these other people, even your own life. Why? Because you go where he sends you. That's how it is, folks. That's Christian discipleship. If you call him Lord, you've got to follow him. Otherwise, it's an empty profession. Okay? It's very important. It's serious stuff. There is no relationship on earth, friend, sibling, parent, spouse, that has authority to keep you away from obeying Jesus. Number three, friendship involves serving and loving one another. Here's what I'm saying. It takes more than left-clicking on a mouse to make a friend. You understand what I'm saying here? All you Facebook fiends. When you go, donk, ah, it's got up to 396 now. Listen, listen, don't be silly. They're not your friends, okay? It might make you feel like, oh, I'm nearly nearly at the 400 mark. It's a false comfort. Some of them may be your friends, but it's a false comfort. I remember when I was on Facebook, it was crazy. I mean, Davina would be saying, who's she? I was like, I don't know, because she's one of my friends. Who's that in the bikini? I don't know. She asked me my friend. I just said yes to everyone. You know. Wait, it's silly. Now, I'm not saying Facebook's silly. I'm sure it has its benefits. What I'm saying is this. Do not consider who your friends are by how many friends Facebook tells you you've got. Ask yourself, what relationships in my life involve loving service? Sacrificial care. They're your friends. They're your friends. It's very important. Friendship usually takes time to develop, not always, but definitely involves giving and sacrifice. It's a laying down of our lives for one another in certain seasons of friendship. Look at these scriptures just to help us. John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. is a sacrificial element. 
Acts 24, 23, when um, he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept, that Paul should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, he's a prisoner at this point, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. In those days, if you're in prison, there's no prison food. There's no prison canteen, folks, okay? The way, if no one brings food to you, you're dead. And so what happened is, Paul's friends are saying, he's there, he's in prison, it's shameful to be associated with a prisoner, but I'm going to go and bring him food. Why? They're friends. Yeah? It's friendship. That's what you need. That's who God wants to give you in your life. Number four, friendships grow as we walk through the fire together. Something of a walking through the fire of opposition, of things going pear-shaped, things going belly up, that's when friendships get forged. Look at these scriptures, Acts 4.23. When the disciples were released after being threatened for preaching the gospel, they went to their friends. That's where you go. And, you, and, they, reported to, and they reported what the chief priests and the elders said and they prayed together. You go to your friends at moments like that. Luke 7, verse 6. Jesus went with them and when he was not far from the house, the centurion who had a sick servant sent friends saying to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. The centurion's there. He's got a sick servant. He sends a message. Jesus, can you come and uh, heal him? And then Jesus is coming to his house. The centurion thinks, no, I'm not worthy. Uh, What can I do? I'm in a dilemma. I can't leave the servant. I'll send me mates. They'll come and they'll speak for me. That's what friends do. They inconvenience themselves. Number five. Friends are those we celebrate with. Hallelujah. We celebrate with our friends. When things go well, we, they're not just in the fire, in the trials. When things go well, we gather together. Look at these scriptures. Luke 15, 6. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbours, saying to them, Rejoice with me, I've found my sheep that was lost. Here's a shepherd who found a sheep that was lost. He doesn't go home and sit in the on those things and blow up with a party hat on by himself while he's on Facebook. He gets his friends round. Yeah? Come with me, drink beer, eat food, let's dance, let's get the Jackson 5 on, let's do some moves. I've got the sheep back. <laughs> yeah? Friends. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you, never disobeyed your command, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Now what's going on here? It's not that in those days people, you know, get the goat round, we need the goat for the party to really kick off. What it is, <laughs> what's happening is, the goat would be cooked and eaten, okay? So it was about feasting together. Eat together with your friends. Go out and get a curry. Weatherspoons, Thursday night, five quid. Go out with your mates and get a good, cheap curry. Have a good, have a good fun. And get expensive wine if you're feeling flush. All right, number six. Friends are to be chosen carefully. Friends are to be chosen carefully. Look at these scriptures. John 2. When Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. Everyone said, oh, Jesus, you're amazing. We love what you're doing. Blah, 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 blah. Jesus is like, cool, cool. But he's not, he's not, he's, I know these guys. They're just, you know, we'll just exercise some discernment here. 1 Corinthians 15.33 Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. <coughs> Psalm 1.1 Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel or the advice of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers. He's choos- choosy and careful about his company. Proverbs 1.10-15 Can we have another one please? My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Say no. If they say, come with us. Let's lie and wait for blood. Let's ambush the innocent without reason. 
Like Sheol, let's swallow them alive and whole. Like those who go down to the pit, we'll find all precious goods. We'll fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We'll all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. No. At this point, you may say to me, but I thought that we're supposed to be friends with sinners. I thought that's the whole idea, that we're on a mission and we're, God's called us to, to, to love those who, who don't love him and to show them his love and the way that we live. How does this work? Here's how it works. That's really, really cool if you're going to be the influencer. It's really, really not cool if you're going to be the influenced. Whoever Jesus met, he influenced. He was not influenced by. Zacchaeus, one quick meal with Jesus, and what's he doing? He's saying, Lord, I want to, anyone I've cheated, I'll pay him back four times, I'll give half my money to the poor. What's happened there? He's been around Jesus, been changed. It's very important. Wisdom is needed on this one. Lots of wisdom. If you're not ready for a certain setting, you're feeling like, do you know what? I've been in this setting trying to be a missionary, but I'm, becoming, I'm just becoming more like, like the world than, than, than like Jesus here, and there's been no influence. And you've got to stop, take stock, and ask for wisdom. Is that, are you ready for that? Very important. Number seven, friendships are not to be overly exclusive. Look at this. Jesus said also to the man who'd invited him for dinner, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your brothers or your your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbours, lest they also invite you in return and be repaid. And he goes on to say, invite the lame and the blind and the poor. Do not let your friendships become overly exclusive so you're so busy having a great, cosy time with your mates all the time, you're never out those loving, who have got, loving those who've got no mates. Yeah? It becomes this closed circle. It becomes a clique. It becomes something ungodly. Let those God has given you that refresh your soul, let them refresh your soul. Why? That you might give out some more. Yeah? Let them build you up wise so that you might build others up some more that really, really need it. So beware of that, that closed circle thing. Always, always getting the same guys around for hospitality. That's not hospitality. Hospitality is showing kindness and um, uh, opening your home to the stranger. Yeah, it's so important that we walk that well with wisdom. Number eight, final one, uh, penultimate one. Loneliness needs to be fought against with everything within you. London is a lonely city. Do not be deceived. There's lots of people here, but it's very, very lonely. Pastorally, one of the things you have to deal with so often is loneliness. People say, I'm lonely. I used to be pretty much a hermit. And I came across this verse in Proverbs once and I was like, ooh, watch. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Why does he break out against all sound judgment? Do you know why? Because he has, he has stopped being open and teachable to others. He's stopped being around others so he can be sharpened and shaped by them. And he's developed his own little system in his head and he's become deceived as a result. Is this you? Is this you? This is very serious. If this is you, I am seriously, partially concerned for you. This is bad. This is bad. You might say, well, no, I'm always listening to sermons on the internet. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what I'm talking about. Because you can filter what you like from that, take the bits that fit into your system from that. I'm talking about genuine human interaction. People are challenging you. Friends that are willing to say, mate, what you're doing there, is that good? What does the Bible say? 
faithful of the wounds of a friend. Faithful. They're willing to say the tough things. Are those people in your life? If not, you are in danger. You are in danger. I'll tell you it now. I'll say it again. You are in danger. You need to welcome and invite and seek after that for your life, for the health of your soul. This is so important. This is so, so important. Satan wants you isolated so he can suck you into a world which is really just revolves around your mind. We are about creating something very different from that. We're about creating a community. We're about building a city within this city where we're totally connected to this city and yet very distinct. To do this, to build these kinds of friendships will take effort, it will take time, sacrifice, energy, thought and creativity. You need to repent of whatever will keep you from doing that. You might think, well, you know what, it's just, it's just this church, it's this church that's the, pro- it's this church that's the problem. I don't, I don't want to connect with anyone here. No problem. Please find a church where you will. We release you. Please just find a church where you will. You may find, if you do that, that actually the problem wasn't the church, that it was you. In which case, if you want to come back and say, that oh, I got it wrong, we welcome you back. Let's build together. If the problem was a church, then hopefully God will teach us that, but we hope you are blessed wherever you go. But let's do this. This is very, very important. Connect with your tens leaders. Connect with peers. Connect with those who aren't your peers, those who are older than you. Look for older brothers and sisters in the church. Look for families in the church that you can, that you can genuinely, meaningfully connect with. Don't just go for people that are like yourself, okay? Be wise, I urge you, please, be wise. One final thing, is your loneliness a symptom of you doing too much? Workaholism. If so, balance it out, better. drop some stuff so you can really engage. Final point, should we be friends with the world? But what does the Bible say? James 4, you adulterous people, don't you know friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What's he saying here? He's not saying that you shouldn't be friends with people in the world. Of course we should. Should be like Jesus. What's he saying? The world system, which involves the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life, you've got to learn to hate it. If you don't hate it, it will seduce you. I go to the gym a few times a week. I do the jogging thing. One of the most distressing things about it is that I'm always at about 10 feet away from the, the pop TV channels. Yeah? I, I, I am now an expert on Deal or No Deal. Or an, I'm an expert on the Alan Titchmarsh show. Why? Because I train myself to watch that screen and refuse and fight everything in me that wants me to watch that screen. Why? Because about 75% of the videos that are shown are basically pornography to music. And I have to hate it. Because the moment I stop hating it, my eyes start going over there. Just to check, you know. But it's powerful. It's so powerful. You want to be friends with that? You make yourself an enemy of God. Simple as. You want to be friends with God? Okay, declare war on that. There it is. No middle ground. No, there is no middle ground. Okay? One hates your soul, one loves your soul. You need to learn to love the one that loves your soul and hate the one that hates your soul. Amen? Amen. Amen.